This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. This is a special episode on historiography. Historiography is a subject for which you could write an entire podcast series on. We only have one episode to cram this highly extensive subject into. Historiography in its simplest form is the study of how history is written. In reality, this subject brings about huge debate on the motivations behind humankind's methods of writing history. So in this episode, we will look at some of the most influential historians in history, how they wrote their histories, and what this can tell us about their motivations, and subsequently the wider impact of their work on society. In popular thought, Herodotus is often cited as the first historian, and is dubbed the father of history as a consequence. His works were very general and tackled a number of societies and their origins. He called his works Historiae, which we can translate to the histories, and consequently give us the first name History as a description of our science of telling stories of the past. Herodotus was not the first to tell us stories though, so can he truly be called the first historian? Other writers gifted us stories of events that happened in their past too, so we should class these as histories too. Herodotus was alive during the 5th century BCE in the lands of ancient Greece. Many centuries previous, the ancient Egyptians recorded details of their battles of their pharaohs on the facades and the walls of temples. Mesopotamians wrote an epic story about an ancient king called Gilgamesh. Many societies recorded king lists, with one of the earliest ones being the Palermo Stone, a 3rd millennium BCE stele recording the list of Egyptian kings. Even the writings of Homer on the subject of the Trojan War predate the writings of Herodotus significantly and tell the story of the heroes of Greek history who were around centuries before the writings of Herodotus. Herodotus was called the father of history, but he was not the first historian. Many before Herodotus had written stories of events of the past, 
Some were fantastically doubtful, such as Homer's works, the Iliad and the Odyssey. And it is even strongly suggested that Homer was not a real person and that his works and his identity were the creation of others. The reason why these works were created was to suggest that ancient Greeks were descended from heroes, with the desire being to inspire than to inform. Even the Romans would attempt to trace their own origins from the heroes of these works. The desire to inspire ancient Greek nations through literary works was no more important than during the period when the ancient Greeks were in conflict with the Achaemenid Persians. This is when Homer's epics would have been used to remind the ancient Greeks of the glory from which they were descended from. The English word history means the study of past events. Herodotus, the man called the father of history, wrote about societies that he discovered. So although he did reference the histories of peoples in his works, he wanted to talk about the cultures that he encountered in his life. The ancient Greek word, historiae, which he used as the title for this particular work, actually comes from a root word relating to the act of discovery. So it can be argued that Herodotus's motivation was not to be a historian, but to examine the present world and the causes and effects which made it what it is, which would naturally require an examination of the history of those societies and their relationships. Later on in the 5th century BCE, a similar writer emerged called Thucydides. Thucydides was an Athenian military general who wrote the history of the Peloponnesian War. Thucydides' motivation to write this work was to give an account of an ongoing event and analyse the causes. Herodotus and Thucydides were both looking to analyse the cause and effect of events of the past explaining the states of the world today. From both of their works, it seems that they would not necessarily look to glorify their own societies, which is something that the Homeric works seemed motivated to do, but to offer a pragmatic analysis that would offer a reasonable overview. So, from a historiographer's point of view, their motivations were similar. Their individual styles and methods differed in that Thucydides deliberately avoided talking about spiritual influences such as the Greek gods, whereas Herodotus was happy to reference the lives and times of the Greek gods as influential over current events. The vastness of information provided by Herodotus has been found to be flawed by historiographers such as army sizes numbering in the millions something that has been analysed as unrealistic. Herodotus claimed that he was only writing what he was told, but his blind obedience to such accounts has led to some calling him the father of lies. Thucydides chose to write with much less of a speculative manner as he deliberately avoided making what he interpreted as Herodotus's mistakes. Thucydides has been called the father of scientific history as a consequence. Both Herodotus and Thucydides 
have done their best to report events in a manner that would help the reader to understand situations in the world. Some of the Greek historians who followed tended to write with the intention to pervert the reader's opinion. In other words, they were motivated to give a biased opinion about the events and the people that they were writing about. We find this type of weighted writing occurs a lot in history, but the period of ancient Greece following the Peloponnesian War sees the emergence of many works of this nature. The most extreme form of this kind of writing is referred to as propaganda. Many centuries earlier, the pharaoh Ramesses II of Egypt commissioned inscriptions talking of his glorious victory against the Hittites, even though evidence suggests that it was the Hittites who actually prevented the Egyptians from expanding northwards into the Levant. In the 20th century, many nations were actively influencing the nations of the world through propaganda. So biased writing, whether in short or long form, has always existed. A lot of the writings of the ancient world cultures of Greece and Rome have also not survived to the modern day. If one nation of people commission writers to write histories that paint them in a positive light, then it would make sense that if they were conquered by their enemies, then they would not only commission their own writers to write an alternative history, but also to destroy all existing previous works that had been written to degrade the new regime. Ancient Rome was heavily influenced by the political structures of ancient Greek societies such as the Athenians and based some of their own political structures on the Greek model. By the turn of the second millennium BCE, Greek culture was an opponent of the ever-expanding Romans and writers such as Cato the Censor would write in a pro-Roman manner, deliberately choosing to avoid Greek influences which he saw as corrupting. So this demonstrates from a very early time that writers found it difficult to remain impartial in their writings. And a good modern historian that endeavours to be impartial will always consider the motivations behind the writings that he is referencing when producing their works. By the turn of the first millennium, Rome had turned from a republic to an empire and the advancement of academia during the centuries leading up to this point were considerable. As the ancient Greeks, Herodotus and Thucydides had styles and motivations unique to themselves, so too were the writers of the early Roman Empire. The Romans had conquered the lands that had belonged to the ancient Greeks, which meant that the Roman Empire had two dominant linguistic cultures, which were Latin and Greek. Both Latins and Greeks were generally quite proud of their individual heritages. However, there was a maturity about many of the historians who wrote within the imperial realm. The Roman historian Tacitus wrote about how the Romans were irreplaceably dominant of their Mediterranean empire, but questioned their morality. The Greek historian Plutarch wrote a series of biographies but did what he could to remain impartial in his reporting, deliberately trying to avoid favouring the Greek ethnicity from which he belonged. 
We have knowledge of the writings of Chinese historians during the classical era also, but we will come back to that later on in the episode. During the period of the Roman Empire, a new wave of personal thinking would begin to sweep across the continent thanks to the religious observance of Christianity. Christianity The Roman Empire was initially strong, but the fractures began to appear as the centuries went by. This may have drawn the Latins and Greeks within the empire further away from each other, and one would wonder if their association with each other was more detrimental than beneficial. The Roman Empire was forced to question its own morality as it wondered why barbarian tribes were becoming more of a threat to its borders than ever. The advent of the rise of Christianity in the face of this moral question brought with it a huge influence on the literature of the Roman Empire. The basis of Christian literature is the Hebrew Bible, which has evolved and survived in Jewish culture to become the Tanakh, and has evolved and survived in Christian culture to become the Old Testament. The Hebrew Bible tells us about the story of how God created the earth in seven days. Many people definitely question the historicity of this claim, with scientific evidence suggesting that this creation of the earth cannot be true. Nonetheless, the power of the content of the Hebrew Bible steamrolls through this scientific opposition to its historicity in many ways. For example, the story of Moses leading the Israelites from Egypt to the Promised Land has been questioned by scholars about whether it actually ever happened. The Hebrew Bible tells us that this event led to the creation of the United Kingdom of Israel, once again something doubted by scientific historians who question the historicity of the Hebrew Bible and struggle to find any evidence anywhere else of this specific nation-state. Whatever the truth is, the nation-state of Israel very definitely exists today and it may only exist as a modern country called Israel due to the amazing influence of the written content of the Hebrew Bible. Despite the fact that the founding literature of Christianity is based on the founding literature of Judaism, Christian literature of the Roman Empire really drove a hurtful wedge between the two religions. The work of Eusebius, Bishop of Caesarea, became a very important point of reference for the Christians, none more so than his ecclesiastical history. Although Christians would take great comfort from the narrative promoting the strength of the Christian church, Eusebius's ecclesiastical history firmly pointed the finger of blame in the direction of the Jews for Jesus Christ's death. Such rhetoric could only serve to promote the justification of Jewish persecution. Eusebius's work was somewhat, and unsurprisingly, pro-Roman, and this would need to be corrected by post-Roman Christian historians. Medieval Europe As Christian monks began to write biographies of Christian saints, then notable leaders would commission biographers to detail their own lives. 
the Wessexian king Alfred the Great commissioned a Welsh monk called Assa to write accounts of his life. King Alfred the Great certainly recognised the power of the pen, and it was this feeling that prompted him to promote the construction of the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, which detailed events taking place in the Anglo-Saxon sphere of influence in Great Britain. Alfred's attitude towards written accounts may well have been influenced by written accounts in relation to the Carolingian dynasty of Frankish kingdoms. Alfred was alive at the end of the 9th century, but during the previous century a chronicle was produced at the Abbey of St Gall, based at the modern Swiss city of St Gallen. The chronicle was a very emotionless account of stated events with no personal influence by the author, and the Anglo-Saxon chronicle followed that same approach. A Frankish courtier called Einhard wrote a flattering account of the life of the Frankish emperor Charlemagne. This would have undoubtedly preserved Charlemagne's prestige for future generations of Franks to refer to when boasting of their national heritage. It could have been for this reason that Alfred approved of Assa writing an account of his life. However, some scholars in more recent centuries have suggested that the works of Assa are not authentic and were written by a later scribe who had different motivations for promoting Alfred's character. So historiographers would be absolutely fascinated by the prospect of exploring all of these possibilities and motivations. The desire to validate imperial rulers after the fall of the Western Roman Empire would also involve reference to the Western Roman Empire. One of the Benedictine monks at the Abbey of St. Gallen was Notka Balbulus, also referred to as Notka the Stammerer, and he would claim that the Carolingian Empire of the Franks would be able to claim itself as a continuation of the Western Roman Empire, but other writers would assert that this was not the case and that the Roman Empire fell with the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Writers would value their own opinion and not always be writing for effect. This was especially relevant for the writers who came from Christian monasteries in a time where loyalties could be directed towards kings and empires but could also be directed towards the Pope or to their monastic movement or to their nation. The same destruction of writings seen during the classical period of Europe would be seen during the medieval period of Europe, for example when the Normans successfully conquered Anglo-Saxon England during the 11th century, an effort was made to remove Anglo-Saxon scriptures that glorified cultures and individuals unfavourable to the Normans. Later Norman kings of England started to value their fused Anglo-Norman identity, and this encouraged 12th century writers to celebrate the history of the English in order to validate the Normans as a valid continuation of the English culture. The Benedictine monk Orderic Vitalis and the historian William of Malmesbury, both examples. So we can still see the power of the pen influencing the way that populations looked at each other during the Middle Ages. 
European historians during the Crusades to the Holy Land were encouraged to write histories that would portray the Christians as the good guys and the opponents as the bad guys, despite the fact that it was just as much a brutal invasion of the Holy Land as it had been for any of the Islamic, Persian or Roman cultures in the centuries before it. Writers also tried to influence and justify the stances of the Holy Roman Empire against the papacy during the investiture controversy, where both sides were trying to justify their authority to appoint bishops over the other. Islam In the context of world history, the culture of Islam rose up from humble beginnings to suddenly become an intercontinental phenomenon. The earliest Muslims justified their existence by claiming a spiritual descent from the characters who were central to the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. The Muslim movements recognised the need for centralised academic power similar to that of the Roman Empire and something that had been lacking in the disjointed medieval European world, where kingdoms, churches and monasteries had been using heritage and personal wisdom to demonstrate superiority. Muslims recognised that having a strong academic base would empower their people to become superior. The cultural capital city of the Islamic world, Baghdad, became a thriving urban centre. For the first Arab Muslims, the greatest historical emphasis was placed on the Prophet Muhammad and his life and experiences, something which is collectively referred to as the Hadith. The story of the human history was centred around the Hadith and was somewhat without question. As Islam traversed through the medieval period of history, the Persians became highly influential before Turkic and Mongolic people came to the head of the Islamic world. Muslim Persian historians would recognise that the Islamic world did not agree with being dictated to and sought to question aspects of the Islamic histories that they had been given by previous generations. So this ushered in a much more inquisitive-natured style of history writing. The Renaissance during the period of medieval Europe, the concept of the nation-state was still comparatively flimsy. This would change more during the period known as the Renaissance, where more people had more access to more information than ever. The invention of the printing press was a great influence in this, which meant that literature could be copied in great quantities. More writers were writing more histories than ever, and this would naturally have a general effect on historiography. There was a renewed desire for European cultures to praise ancient pre-Christian scriptures as respectable, such as those produced by the ancient Greeks, the Roman Republic and the early Roman Empire. Ancient historians who had been debunked by Christian historians were now being forgiven for not having had the opportunity to have been enlightened by Christianity. People were encouraged to discuss their feelings about ancient histories and to explore their own answers. When the Italian humanist Leonardo Bruni wrote his history of the Florentine people over the turn of the 15th century, it was written in such a way that it would celebrate Florence's connections with ancient Rome. 
Therefore, it would value its connection with pre-Christian culture in a way that would be unusual for many earlier European medieval histories. His motivations would have been to boost confidence in Florence, which at the time was a very important maritime trading nation. By demonstrating Florence's respectability, it may encourage more investment. Leonardo Bruni is regarded as the first modern historian as his history is written with much more of a secular leaning, something that would inspire other historians at a time when confidence in the trustworthiness in the Roman Catholic brand of Christianity was being brought into question, something further excited by writers on many levels, not just historians. Niccolò Machiavelli was one of the Renaissance's most well-known historians and he was from Florence. Due to Machiavelli's nature to heavily philosophise about the histories that he was writing about, he is seen more as a philosopher than a historian, but it would be true to refer to him in both manners. East Asia During the 3rd century BCE, China entered its imperial period, initially with the short-lived Qin dynasty and then followed by the longer-lasting Han dynasty. Those peoples who were employed in the civil service of imperial China were required to go through an imperial examination in order to qualify for such employment. Part of the examination was to demonstrate a knowledge of selected history scriptures. One of the scriptures was called the Chongchu, which has also come to be known as the Spring and Autumn Annals. It chronicles a period of a few centuries in the middle of the first millennium BCE, which has subsequently been called the Spring and Autumn Period in reference. The chronicle has had great status as it was claimed to have been written by Confucius the profoundly influential Chinese philosopher. Many historians doubt that it was actually written by Confucius, though. The Chun Chu has become one of the five classics, which alongside the four books became the Confucian canon, all of which constitute part of the imperial examination. Although these scripts were not written with the intent to become part of an examination, they became part of the ethos that Imperial China wanted to instill into all of its civil servants. So we can see here how literature can be used to affect by others making it the fundamental and mandatory underpinning influence of their society. The words of the literature were the glue that bound together all of the members of the Imperial Society. Chinese history taught China that the rise of a new dynasty would be the refresher that would cleanse the corrupt outgoing old dynasty. East Asia during the ancient period was looking to establish similar things by using literature. Some histories were written with a desire to be accurate to the truth, while others were written with a desire to glorify cultures by embellishing their histories to sound greater than they likely were and by making fantastic claims of supernatural events in order to support national hegemony. 
In other words, making your society sound like it has powerful origins in order to gain the obedience of its subjects. Similar styles of literature and similar usages of literature developed in both Europe and the Far East. When the Song dynasty were ruling China from the 10th to the 13th century, Chinese students were encouraged to read a state-approved historical canon, demonstrating the power of controlled literature. Modern History So we have learned that there are essentially two things of interest here when discussing historiography. Firstly, realising that histories were often written by individuals who had an individual motive for writing their histories. Secondly, how those written histories were used, quite often after the author's lifetime, and highly likely in a way that the original author could not have telegraphed. It is impossible to discuss all of the written histories of the world in a single podcast episode. So let's now try to take our knowledge of written histories and look at the nature of history writing in the modern world. During the 18th century, the Kingdom of Great Britain was a kingdom where party politics was blossoming with the rivalry between the Whigs, who would often put forward a Prime Minister, and the Tories, who were prevented from challenging them. The Scottish historian David Hume wrote a work called The History of England. Hume would assert that real human experiences formed true knowledge as opposed to spiritual or abstract ideas such as the human mind being created with predetermined conditions such as being impregnated by God, for example. Hume would champion the works of Thucydides above those of Herodotus due to Thucydides' scientific nature. Hume would cite Thucydides as the first writer of real history. David Hume's own work was extremely popular, but would be branded as Tory-natured revisionism and was therefore highly controversial. The American statesman Thomas Jefferson even had the publication censored. Hume himself may have been influenced by the work of the French philosopher Voltaire, who had been writing his own brand of revisionist history during the same period. Voltaire himself was highly critical of religion, especially the monotheistic religions of the world such as Catholicism, Islam and Judaism. He was much more complementary of Oriental philosophies such as Confucianism, which was founded on honest wisdom as opposed to the desire to elevate oneself to the level of a god or a prophet. One well-known adage that emanated from Voltaire is Si Dieu n'existe pas, il faudrait l'inventer, which essentially translates to If God didn't exist, it would be necessary to invent him. This suggests that the concept of God was a human creation. But some suggest that it is actually a criticism of atheism. This just shows that the legacy of literature is not always what the writer wants to write, but also what the reader wants to read. This was the age of the Enlightenment, 
a time when freedom of thought and a subsequent new wave of philosophy swept across Europe. Writers were now challenging the authority of the state and its moral fibre, as well as the influence of the church, which had been under scrutiny for much longer. History writers were now expected to substantiate their writings, and one of the first to do this was the English historian and politician called Edward Gibbon, who wrote a history of the Roman Empire using other source material. Nowadays, we see that history books are riddled with citations. The presence of citations substantiates the book in a world where anyone can write a history. Now, the reader wants to see that there is supporting evidence for the texts that they are attempting to put their faith into. With there now being a more widespread need to understand the nature of aspects of modern life by means of philosophy coupled with science, history was now being used as a means to study the evolution of all of these aspects with a view to gaining wisdom, with a further view to understand why things exist as they do. Generally, this would be with a desire to improve the human mind and improve society, but also we would see that these understandings would be used to influence the minds of those non-intellectuals around the world in an age of imperial expansions. So European nation-states would now be trying to use history books to impose their authority over other areas of the world. Some might argue that all of these motivations and techniques when using history writings have always existed. But the difference during the period after the Age of Enlightenment was that it was global. During the medieval period, it is noted how much further advanced the histories written by Muslims and the Chinese were when compared to Europeans. With the rapid modernisation of European cultures, Chosen histories were being used in the ever-advancing education systems, meaning that the next generation could be taught a history that would create a national feeling of superiority. We can see a decline in the histories of some Asian societies during the 19th century when there is a feeling of strong westernising influence on much of the rest of the world. For the imperial nations of Europe, it was interesting for them to re-educate the world and justify the superiority of Western nations. As Western nations became more powerful over the course of the 19th century, the tensions between those nations increased and with a considerable amount of new created wealth used in tandem with scientific advancement, the direct consequence of those tensions were going to become far-reaching with devastating consequences for millions of people. With the sudden appearance and rise to power of the modern nation-state of Germany came with it a desire to financially and politically compete with the other powerful nations of Europe, such as France, Russia and the United Kingdom. The long road to the conflicts of the First and Second World War would see many German statesmen of differing ideologies using the glory of Germanic history to create a feeling of nationalism within the new country. In the aftermath of these wars, we would see a conflict of ideologies between the capitalist westernised states led by the United States and the communist states led by the Soviet Union. 
communist leaders would look back to the writings of the 19th century German philosopher Karl Marx to justify their political position. Marx had written that his view of history saw communism as an eventuality of an evolving society and that it was an advancement of capitalism. But Marx may not have known or approved of the results of his philosophy or its association with some of the more violent communist regimes of the 20th century. The aftermath of the Second World War also saw a backlash against imperialism and colonialism as the nations of Europe had exhausted their resources in warfare and started to question its own morality. This left the door open for the histories of non-Western nations to flourish once more and install a new feeling of national pride in nations that had previously been made to feel inferior to their colonisers. This led to independence movements globally. It is my personal view that history is constantly being revised and that the question of historiography is almost infinite in its possibilities as a consequence. For every piece of history written, there will be a motivation by the writer for writing that history and there will be a motivation by the reader for interpreting that history. And then to add a further layer, there may be a revisionist to question the interpretations of the reader. With each writing of history, there is a danger of heightened inaccuracy due to multiple transmissions of information. So a responsible historian, while giving his opinions, should always be prepared to criticise their own level of expertise and cite their sources. It is my opinion that the study of historiography in itself is deeply philosophical and creates more questions than answers. My own History of the World podcast is only one history of the world. You can see authors being careful to call their works a history of, as opposed to the history of. I'm always humbled if someone from another nation compliments my commentary on an aspect of their nation's history. And it often is questioned how much right a historian has to write on a particular subject. So, as a white male, should I be authorised to write about black history or should I be authorised to write about women's history? Whatever the answer is, if I am writing about a history of the world, I feel obliged to write on these subjects. What of my own motivations for writing a podcast on the history of the world? Personally, I love studying history because I like learning about the world I live in and I believe that the secrets about the natures of our modern world are locked within the stories of our past. I believe that we can learn about our world by studying its history and if we understand our world better then we can have more positive influences on it. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A big thank you for listening to this week's episode of the History of the World podcast on the subject of historiography. And if you enjoy the podcast and want to support the podcast, please visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com. Click on the Patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution. When you do, you will become a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati and you can qualify for the various gifts and rewards that we distribute. Now then, we have some new History of the World podcast Illuminati members to welcome in. They are Finn Powner and Jin Tanat. So welcome along to the History of the World podcast Illuminati. If you want to access some bonus material and want to listen to the podcast ad-free, then you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify Uh, Just click on the link in the podcast description to do that now. It's very inexpensive and you get all of that access to bonus material. If you want to get in touch with the podcast, then please drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. Listener messages and reviews. This week's History of the World podcast episode was commissioned by History of the World podcast Illuminati member Diane Timmerman, and she qualified for that right by being a History of the World podcast Illuminati member through Patreon and making the relevant uh, subscription um, contributions. And uh, this was, it was my pleasure to give you this episode, Diane. It was a tough one to write, quite deep, quite profound. And uh, I really had to be very, very careful and think very carefully about uh, what I was writing. So I had to sort of go through it with great care. Uh, But hopefully it was a good episode in the end and it was worth doing. Uh, Diane, you wrote in in, uh, after last week and said, Hi, Chris. Um, As I didn't put out a podcast last week, uh, Diane said, I wanted to say that I can't wait for it to be recorded. It's quite different from your regular podcast, so postpone it to another in-between regular podcast period. I'm already thrilled you are doing it. Like many of your listeners, I appreciate how much effort you put into the podcast, and I'm always looking forward to every episode. Kind regards, Diane. Thank you, Diane, and uh, I hope you enjoyed your episode. Uh, Tobias from Chilliwack. Uh, British Columbia wrote in and said I love your podcast I'm at volume one episode 18 you're telling the story of Utsi Um, I have so many other things to say and questions to ask but for now what's a resource that you recommend to learn deeply about Utsi love 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 what you're doing Uh, Utsi is the Iceman that was discovered um, that dates back a few thousand years Uh, and he was um, he was discovered in the Alps um, frozen his body was preserved by ice and um, it's really opened up a fascinating uh, world of study around uh, who Utzi was and what his personal lifestyle was just by uh, examining the content of his body and, and, the, and the state and condition of his body we've discovered we've discovered so much we've we've supposed so much about his lifestyle 
And um, I don't really know of any deep resources because I didn't use any. I, I did only cover him as a brief uh, subject during discussing about ice ages. Uh, but um, the well, it's not maybe not so much about the ice ages, more about uh, Neolithic peoples, I think, if I'm not mistaken. But certainly, um, let's see the Iceman. There was a film made about him about six years ago. Um, I haven't seen it myself, but it does look like a fascinating watch. So I'm, I'm sure I'll be trying to discover that at some point. And maybe that's if you're interested in let's see the Iceman. Iceman, maybe that's somewhere you could go to find out a bit more about um you know what let's see the Iceman's all about. But granted, it is a it is a dramatization of uh of of Utsi's life, so it might not be exactly what you're looking for, Tobias. But it definitely sounds interesting nonetheless. But uh thanks for writing in, Tobias. Stephen Williams wrote in and said, Hi Chris, thanks for answering my question on the air in your latest episode. I realised after I sent it that it was rather a tough question and I appreciate your efforts to answer it in depth. Thank you for mentioning the book as well. I think I will check out the shortest history of democracy for myself. It looks interesting. Keep up the great work and take care. Thanks Steve, you, you earned the right to ask me a question by being a History of the World podcast Illuminati member, for which I'm absolutely grateful to each and every one of you who does make contributions towards the project. It really, really helps. And and I've bought so many books thanks to you guys. Um, and these books have helped me. I'm going to talk a little bit about the books that I used uh, for this historiography episode in my exclusive uh, subscribers uh, episode which will be published alongside this one so if you want to learn more about the resources that I use sign up to be a subscriber and then you can listen to the bonus material if you're a patreon um, or yeah if you, or if, if you contribute to uh, through patreon uh, you can also listen to that bonus episode uh, but it comes a week later than the subscribers so you, you can hear it a week uh, after um Anyway, um, yes, Stephen, you wrote about, uh, you, you asked me a question about democracy in the Middle Ages and I attempted to answer it on last week's episode. So if anyone is interested and they didn't get to hear it, just listen to last week's episode to listen more about Steve's question. Liam Brooks also wrote in and he said, uh, Liam's my name, he's, he's put, good day, Chris, gives us a little bit of a giveaway from where he's from. Uh, Liam's my name, I'm a 25-year-old telecommunications technician by trade from Dubbo in New South Wales, Australia, and a colossal fan of the podcast. Love your work, mate, hope you're well. I've taken up the passion for history in the last few years of my life. Now, during this time and after having not taken any history classes during my schooling, I'm a budding, uh, I am, I beg your pardon, I'm, I'm building on a passion for the origins of man and further, how societies were formed and continue to shape the human psychology. I wanted to reach out and say that just um, that after just nine episodes and comparing other content creators to yourself, I will absolutely be committing to listening to each episode from the start and continuing to listen as more episodes are released. I live in rural Australia, far from any largely accessible information, and I must say that your content in form of listenable and digestible portions is a blessing for someone in my similar circumstances. 
I drive a lot for work, working a 250 kilometer radius of area to repair and install phone lines and internet services. Sometimes I have a two hour drive from A to B. This has let me start really punching through some hot world content. I should be fully up to speed in a matter of weeks. I wouldn't have any recommendations on what to change, mate. Just keep it going the way it is. I'd compare your effort in uh, incollating all of the data to a modern-day encyclopedia or Pliny's natural history workings and couldn't be more grateful for a digital listenable platform to learn about my passion. Also, I'd love to be part of a tour one day. Thanks for taking the time to read. All the best. Thanks, Liam. What a great message. What a very positive and uh, and kind message you've written there. And it's uh, it's great to see what you're doing for so many people there, installing the phone lines and internet services. I'm sure there's many people who are incredibly grateful for what you're doing there. So well done to you. Um, anyway, carrying on. We had a review this week on Apple Podcasts from Canada. Tripnet has written great podcast delivery is interesting and fun. After reading Will and Ariel Durant's The Story of Civilization when young, I was looking to revisit and refresh that educational journey. Chris's series is excellent in that regard. Thorough, concise, just an all-round fantastic job and podcast. Thank you, Chris. Ronnie, Toronto, Canada. Thank you very much, Ronnie. Um, next week, I'm hoping that we can get back into volume four. So it's long overdue. We get back into the volume that we are in the thick of. And our next um, area of the world that we're going to is India, and um, particularly the southern tip of India, where the Tamil uh, cultures uh, originate and have flourished. And uh, we'll be looking initially at the Chola industry, uh, sorry, the Chola dynasty, I should say, rather than industry. Um, so we'll be looking at that and particularly the, the years where the Chola were, were, were an imperial force in the south of India. So that's to come. Anyway, thank you so much for listening this week. Don't forget to subscribe and listen to the bonus material. Um, that will be coming at the same time as this one. So it will be published alongside this one. So it should be available now. And uh, thank you so much for listening. Until next week, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com. And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.